Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jason Silverman, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. And my name is Peter Liu, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm super excited to welcome the newest member of our team, Dr. Tamara Hajat. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. My name is Tamara Hajat. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome, Tamara. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm super excited to introduce my mentor, Dr. Jeffrey Himes, who is the division head of the gastroenterology division and director of inflammatory bowel disease and infusion center at Connecticut Children's Hospital. He's also the Mandel Bryanstein Family Endowed Chair for Pediatric IBD, and he is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. It's been an honor to have him as a mentor, and we are excited to have him as a guest today. It's really great to have Dr. Hyams here to talk about inflammatory bowel disease, which is, of course, a super important topic in pediatric GI. Um, Today, we're going to really focus on the area of treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, and we're hoping to address some of the controversies around some of the decision-making that goes into deciding which therapy to use for our patients with inflammatory bowel disease, particularly in the era of having multiple biologic therapies available to use. Awesome. On to the show. Dr. Himes, you're a world-renowned pediatric gastroenterologist. You're one of the founders of Pediatric IBD, and you're on many IBD papers. It has been a great honor to have you as a mentor. Something interesting that people don't know about you is that you are very funny. And you really like to use emojis in your emails. What is your favorite emoji? And tell us a fun fact about yourself. So my favorite emojis are the GI emojis. So, you know, there's the pile of, you know what. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I probably the favorite emoji is the one with that person vomiting, you know, right <laughs> at the beginning. Because I think that just sort of sums up how I feel about a number of things. So I often <laughs> use them in my emails. Yeah, I got I got those emojis as an email multiple times. <laughs> yes, yeah, Tamara, I actually almost worn out the emoji button in my emails with you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> I do have a great love besides medicine, and it is the game of baseball. So as a kid growing up in northern New Jersey in the, in the late 50s and 60s, every kid had an aspiration that was to be a major league ball player. And I was a New York Yankees fan. And every kid who was a New York Yankees fan wanted to be Mickey Mantle. Little did I know at that time that the person who is my hero was basically drunk for most of the games and did a whole variety of other things that really today would be looked at very, very differently. But my hero. And I have to say that if it were not for an acute and chronic lack of talent, uh, I would have been a baseball player. But I recognized very early that despite the fact I actually could field and I could run and I could throw really well, I could not hit a baseball, just could not hit a baseball. So it became very clear to me medicine needed to be my direction with uh, baseball as my hobby. So it's a sad story. I would have been in the Hall of Fame for baseball, but unfortunately, it's pediatric GI. Yeah. That's how I felt too about my NBA career is a lack of talent and height, but uh, (laughs) I could have been really great. 
Correct. Correct. There's this great cartoon that I saw many years ago. It's a picture of Albert Einstein dribbling a basketball surrounded by these giants. And it basically said a little known fact was that Albert Einstein was on his way to a professional basketball career before a severe ankle injury pushed him over into physics. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing, you know, when we were thinking about guests to bring on, time your name was brought up, I wanted to ask was, in addition to this amazing career in pediatric IBD, you were also the first author of the Pediatric Rome 4 Criteria for Functional GI Disorders. So how did that come about? Like, how did you become part of that committee despite all the things you've accomplished in IBD? So it's an interesting story, but as you know, that so much of what we do in pediatric IBD is also functional gastrointestinal disorders. These are not mutually exclusive disorders. And every busy pediatric gastroenterologist, most of what we do, in fact, are functional gastrointestinal disorders. So when I started my career, there really was an opportunity to not specialize, so to speak. And I became interested in really the duality of how our patients report symptoms and why would I see active symptoms in someone with no obvious disease and vice versa. I was lucky and I was a hard worker and I read the literature and it was sort of at the beginning of the whole Rome experience. Rome 1, I believe, was late 80s, early 90s. So I was very fortunate in being friends with Paul Hyman, uh, David Fleischer, and then Carlo DiLorenzo. And they became my functional friends as opposed to my IBD friends. <laughs> and I loved to write. And I had an opportunity to participate in the Rome process. And there was no question that my IBD experience and knowledge was complementary to my functional knowledge and vice versa. It has been a great pleasure and honor to do both. And all of it really worked together, I think, to make me a better doctor. And I love teaching both. And when I explain to kids why they continue to have symptoms, even when they're in biologic remission, I think I'm much more convincing because I believe it myself. So it's been an honor. It's been fun. When I'm with my IBD friends, I tell them how much more fun they are than my functional friends. (laughs) And when I'm with my functional friends, I tell them, oh, God, you guys are so much more fun than my IBD friends. (laughs) So it's a very interesting um, world in between. I love it. Yeah, I think today I feel like there's so much focus on finding your niche and really sub-sub specializing. But if you keep your horizons open, I feel like there's a lot of opportunities that you may come across. There really are. It's been an unbelievable journey. I'm so lucky to have been able to do what I've done so far. That's great. That's great. Um, so bearing in mind and completely ignoring the fact that Peter is on this call, um, but we're going to make your IBD friends happy for a while and and really try and focus on, on that area of your life. Although I appreciate the fact that you get to wear multiple hats in different times um, and sort of play to your strengths in both of those areas. Um, but the IBD field, it's constantly evolving with new research, new treatment options. And today we wanted to address some of the common questions uh, for uh, a general audience, for trainees, for um, for for our community of uh, pediatric gastroenterologists, but also touch on uh, some of the controversial topics in uh, treating uh, pediatric IPD. Can you tell us in general your approach on which first-line therapy you would choose for a patient who's been recently diagnosed with ulcerative colitis? Sure. 
So, you know, it's interesting how much we know and how little we know about the treatment of IBD. And I just want to take a little bit of a historical perspective. In 2011-2012, Ted Denson and I started the uh, NIH-supported PROTECT study. And PROTECT was a study in which we wanted to better understand in children newly diagnosed with ulcerative colitis what the likelihood would be of them achieving remission on mesalamine on a 5-ASA. Just think about that. 10 years ago, we didn't know that. That's crazy, right? It's absolutely crazy. And second, we wanted to understand some of the biology as to why people did do well and others didn't. So, you know, we could walk into a room of a newly diagnosed kid with ulcerative colitis and we could say to a family, you know, your kid may do great or you, your kid may need a colectomy in the next three to six months. And yes, we would look at initial disease severity as an important prognostic feature, but the bottom line is we didn't have any really hard numbers to tell people. So with that, we sort of said, okay, let's look at this and let's take several hundred newly diagnosed kids with ulcerative colitis, ranging in severity from mild to moderate to severe, and let's treat them all, okay, this is really original, in a standard way. So when we give them steroids, let's all give them the same dose. And we give them 5-ASA, let's all give them the same dose. And let's give them the same drug. As it turned out, we used Pentassa because... Shire was extraordinarily generous and they supplied it to our study. And you can take Pentassa, open it up and dump it in something. So if a kid can't swallow a pill, they could at least swallow the granules. And the reason we did this is because if you think about it, for a kid newly diagnosed with UC, what is the ideal outcome? That they're in remission on mesalamine only. They're not on steroids. They're not on a biologic. They're not having a colectomy. So what we found was if you present with mild to moderate disease, you have about a 50% chance, one out of two, of being on mesalamine only in remission at a year. So is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? If you present with more severe disease, it's about one out of four, but you still can do it, right? You still can do it. So even in the kid who comes in, who's sick, if you give them steroids and they get better quickly, give that person a chance to fail mesalamine. Let them fail mesalamine before you commit them to an immunomodulator or you commit them to a biologic. Now, if you're steroid refractory, it's a different story, obviously. You're not going to be wasting a lot of time with the 5-ASA. So that's a long way of saying, I say to families from day one, child has ulcerative colitis. At least that's what we think. We're right 90% of the time. I'm going to give your child every opportunity to do well on mesalamine. If they're mild now, it's a 50% shot. If they're not, it's about a 25 to 30%. But I'm going to give them that opportunity. I know we're going to talk more about Crohn's later, but I don't have mesalamine as my oral sort of very safe maintenance medicine for Crohn's. I have it for ulcerative colitis. So that's where I always start with that premise. How can I get someone on mesalamine? Now, if they come in with acute severe colitis and their corticosteroid unresponsive, then I move very quickly to a biologic. And for me, that's an anti-TNF. It's not vetalizumab. That's not the right drug for someone with acute severe colitis. 
Can I just um, maybe to cover off one one sure. other's kind of subpopulation? You mentioned the the child that comes in with acute severe colitis and and is steroid refractory, um, and that's when you quickly move on to an anti TNF agent. What about the the child that comes in with with severe colitis but does respond to steroids initially? Um, what does your go to for that population? So for that person, if let's say they come in acute severe colitis, we treat them with intravenous corticosteroids, and in twenty four to forty eight hours, they're doing great, and that happens. That absolutely happens. So they go home on prednisone. They're on prednisone for two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, I add a five ASA. And then one week later, I start to taper the prednisone. I don't taper it right away in case someone has a paradoxical reaction to the 5-ASA. Then I'm not quite sure what happens. So by three weeks, I've added the 5-ASA, and then I slowly start to taper the prednisone. And if they do well, that's where I go. If they don't do well, or if they get worse when I've added a 5-ASA, then I have a decision to make. And the decision is, do I use an anti-TNF or do I use vetalizumab? Recognizing that it's not approved for under 18, but we use it anyway. In some Someone who's doing really well, vetalizumab is my first choice because we know that people do better with vetalizumab if they're anti-TNF naive. The safety profile is extraordinarily favorable and I will give it a chance. In my experience, it's probably about 40 to 50% of the time I am successful with vetalizumab and the other times I need to go to an anti-TNF. When I treat someone with ulcerative colitis with an anti-TNF, my preference is an intravenous anti-TNF, which generally means in fliximab because I have much more dosing flexibility. With the injectables, you don't have that same kind of flexibility. You may have harder time achieving a higher blood level. And we know whether it's acute severe colitis in the hospital or sometimes even ambulatory colitis, you need more drug. So we will generally default to starting with 10 per kilo and seeing what our response is. And then down the road, I absolutely can feel comfortable about lowering the dose if I've had a nice therapeutic response and I have reasonable blood levels. We all run into the problem of getting third-party payers sometimes in an ambulatory situation to pay for 10 per kilo. That's great, Dr. Himes. Really good to know. So how about your approach on patients with newly diagnosed Crohn's disease? And especially if these patients come in with a perianal disease. Sure. So my approach has changed fairly dramatically over the last 15 or 20 years. I I remember vividly having conversations with families when I was a young faculty, and we're really talking about Crohn's now, not ulcerative colitis, where I would say to them, you know what, you're feeling better, and it's all about feeling better. And then I would get my CRP back, and it would be high, and I would get my albumin back, and it would be low. And my patient would say, Dr. Himes, I feel great, right? I'm eating, I'm playing sports, I'm going to school. And how come my CRP is still elevated? How my my albumin? And I remember very vividly saying, you know, Mary, I don't treat lab results. I treat my patients. Boy, was I wrong, right? But by the same token, all I had were steroids and I had sulfasalazine and I did have six mercaptopurine, which seemed to me to allow me to lower my dose of prednisone. But by three, four years, my kids were having surgery. So I never got the impression that I was changing natural history very much. And then 22 years ago, we had biologics, we had the anti-TNFs, we had infliximab, and that really changed the ballgame for me. And the whole concept 
of mucosal healing and lab normalization started to improve. And the other thing that became clear to me, particularly with some of our kids with Crohn's, even though they felt better, they didn't grow. They just simply did not achieve normal growth velocity. And we now know it was because of cytokines, which were probably interfering with the growth axis, probably some subclinical poor nutrition, but they just didn't thrive. So now I have a whole new approach to things. And I really do have a very top-down approach to the treatment of pediatric Crohn's disease. And I think really detailing where the disease is, is important. It's staging. It's what the oncologist did forever. And now what we do as well. I need to know where the disease is. That doesn't mean I start a biologic right away, but I give everybody a very short rope if I'm not going to start a biologic. And I look very much where they are with respect to growth. If I have a 16 or 17-year-old who's 6'2 and 2 210 pounds, I'm not terribly worried about growth. But if I have a 13-year-old, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with things other than biologics. But there are some families who don't want to start that way. And I say, fine, you know what? We're going to give it two months or three months. And it might be methotrexate. It might be something else. But I have a very short rope. Perirectal disease has a lot of morbidity for patients. We don't have good medical therapies other than the biologics. And I used metronidazole for years to the point where people got peripheral neuropathies from taking too much. You're going to use it. Always ask if you're getting any tingling in your toes or in your fingers, let me know right away. And I would always be checking deep tendon reflexes every time because that's all I had for perirectal disease. I start with an anti-TNF right away in those patients. In our practice, and I think it's fairly similar to most other leading centers, probably about 60 to 70% of our newly diagnosed Crohn's patients are on an anti-TNF by one year from diagnosis. And I would say that's about 20 to 25% for our ulcerative colitis patients, but a much higher predominance uh, than it even was 10 years ago. Can I just ask a question about the perirectal disease? Does it make a difference which anti-TNF you use and is there a certain level to achieve? So two things are really important. If there's drainable pus, you need to drain the pus. Do not ever start an anti-TNF someone with perirectal disease until they've been imaged and you make sure there's not an abscess. That's how people get into trouble. Again, I will tell you, I tend to prefer intravenous rather than injectable simply because I can generally achieve a much higher blood level. I shoot for 10 to 15 as my baseline for people with significant perirectal disease, but I'll push it up to 20 or even a little bit higher. I'm not afraid to use combination antibiotics. And I think having a surgeon who is experienced in perirectal disease, who allows you to make certain that things are well-drained is important. There are some patients who have really terrible perirectal disease who do not heal with an anti-TNF. And if they have really bad disease, those are patients in whom one needs to think about diversion while you're achieving high levels for a period of time. And many of those can actually have reanastomosis, but they do not heal until they're diverted. 
A quick question just to add on. So for patients with Crohn's disease who do not have perianal disease, how do you think about uh, nutrition-based treatments? As you know, it's different. If you live in Western Europe, when you're diagnosed, everybody gets started on exclusive enteral nutrition. And if you're in some centers in Canada, it's exactly the same thing. If I have someone with relatively mild disease, more small bowel than large bowel, I always offer that as an option. And that is part of my first conversation. Some people look at you in horror, others embrace it and it's great. So we do offer it. We try it. I would say probably not more than about five to 10% of our patients, but I also use EEN sometimes as a rescue when people are not doing well on the biologics. And I'll do three months of EEN and sometimes you can calm things down. I call it a biologic reset, whereas one therapy, which didn't work before, all of a sudden now starts to work. So yes, it's part of what we offer. Just a lot of families don't embrace it. We've been criticized by saying, well, you don't embrace it enough. We do embrace it and we do tell people, but at the end of the day, it's mutual decision-making. And uh, you kind of mentioned this a little bit already in talking about your approach to Crohn's disease treatment, but one of the things that's become a bigger and bigger focus upon has been this concept of treating to target when we talk about treating children with inflammatory bowel disease. Can you talk a bit more about that and what that means? Yes. So I love the term. I absolutely love the term because clearly when I was early in my career, I don't know what target we were treating because it was like this really big target, but it makes so much sense if you think about it, that if you can truly heal the gut. And that is achievable now. It was not achievable many years ago, but it's achievable now. Just think about that. You do normalize growth. You do decrease the likelihood of cancer later in life. You do decrease the likelihood of surgery. And it makes so much sense to people to think about it that way. It's again, the shared decision-making. So literally for me, the education I have with families starts, and Tamara knows this, in the discussion room after we have an endoscopy and a diagnosis. So when I sit down with the family and I tell them, and and, you know, people hear maybe a quarter of what I'm telling them when you've said your child has Crohn's, your child has ulcerative colitis, but I'll say to them, you know, my goal right now is to make your kid feel better. But a year from now, I want that bowel to have healed and that's achievable, but we need to work on this together. There are steps that we need to take to get where we're going to be. And I tell them the endoscopy that is just as important as the one that I did that day is the one that I'm going to do in a year, which is going to show me how successful we were. And that way they're looking forward to that repeat colonoscopy rather than when you say it to them at six months or eight months, you know, we need to repeat the colonoscopy. Why? We're feeling better. And then you're starting fresh and they're in a very different spot. Yeah, that's a great point. One common question that comes to mind is when should I hold IBD therapy prior to surgery? So are there recommendations different if the medication the patient is on is an anti-TNF versus vetalizumab versus steroid? And do you tend to hold therapy for a minor procedure such as dental extractions or something sure, like that? Sure. No, great questions. The the surgical literature changes about every six months. It tells you, oh, make sure you hold out. Oh, you don't have to hold it. It's all, it's all over the place. The one medicine that I think you want to minimize is prednisone. So if you have a kid in the hospital who you know is going for surgery in the next few days or in a week, and that child is prednisone or steroid refractory, why in the world are you still giving that kid 
so much solumedrol. It makes no sense whatsoever. Get it down to a reasonable physiologic level. And there are many different ways one can figure that out. The one that I use is 13 milligrams per meter squared of hydrocortisone is sort of your endogenous need. And I give three to five times that. So now I'm giving more than enough to include stress dose, but I don't need a pharmacologic amount of steroid. The problem with anti-TNFs and vetalizumab, you have a long half-life. It's around for a while. So if you just gave an anti-TNF a week or two ago, and they're going for surgery in two days, well, the point is moot. Guess what? It's in their blood. And the same thing with vetalizumab. I have not seen personally an increase in any issues of post-operative septic complications or wound infections, other than I think related to people being on a lot of steroids, both before and afterwards. And the other thing is, please make sure when your surgeons are writing their post-op orders and they've just done a resection and there's no disease in there anymore, you still don't need to be giving the equivalent of 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone a day, right? Get that dose down. So I think that's really, really important. For minor surgical procedures, I generally don't hold. It's really hard to do that. There was a big one about, should you hold vitalizumab if someone's having their wisdom teeth out? Because all of our patients have their wisdom teeth out, you know, when they graduate high school. We don't. And I think we're fooling ourselves. Maybe you don't want to give the infusion the day before. And families always say, when should we schedule our wisdom teeth to come out? And I say, get them scheduled and we'll figure it out. I don't think it's a big deal. I really don't. That's great. Dr. Himes, I would like to touch briefly on upcoming therapies in pediatric IBD, such as small molecules. Tofacitinib, or Zelgens, is used to treat adults with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, but is not yet FDA approved in children. What can you tell us about the use of Zelgens in children and any side effects to be aware of? Small molecules. So again, we're at a different point in our history with small molecules because it's the new kid on the block, right? We don't have a lot of familiarity with this. Just like we were in 1998 when Remicade started, we didn't have a lot of familiarity. So we need to become comfortable. So the most important thing is, you know, for tofacitinib on the label is you need to fail an anti-TNF before you get it. So you're taking care of someone who has failed steroids, failed an anti-TNF, and probably failed vetalizumab most of the time, quite frankly, because people have been using vetalizumab for six or seven years. I have respect for it because, again, I still don't feel I know as much about it as I need to. We have used it. When it works, it is really impressive. It works quickly. And when it doesn't work, it just simply doesn't work. So it's funny that you bring that question up because I got an email this morning from a very good colleague who said to me, down to what age would you consider using tofacitinib? And I said, that's a really tough question. I wouldn't use it in a four-year-old for sure because I'd have no idea what the dose is. So what I told him, and I think this is reasonable, is if you have a patient who is 30 kilos and up, so you're probably talking about a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, somewhere in that ballpark, and you've exhausted other possibilities, and you can give five milligrams twice a day, then I think you can consider using it. I have no idea what the dose for a four-year-old would be. And I would be extremely afraid that I was overdosing. And again, it comes as 
10 milligram pills and five milligram pills. That's how it comes. There's no liquid preparation of this. You're not going to ask pharmacy to put it into a liquid. So I think it's reasonable. You're always using it in someone who's already gone through a lot of medicines. The other thing that's really important is if it's going to work, it does work quickly. So I think it's reasonable to say to a family, we're going to do this, but if we have seen no response within two weeks, we're going to stop. Because if you look at the literature, your response really happens relatively quickly. It's not a drug you're going to get for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks to see if it's starting to work. It's an old maxim as well that I heard when I was a fellow. It's more important to save a life than to save a colon. And it really is important. If your patient is in the hospital and is super sick and they're febrile and they have a tender abdomen, it's not the time to be giving tilfacitinib. Just to follow up on that a little bit. So Tamara mentioned that uh, it's currently approved for UC. Have you had experience with using it for UC and Crohn's or is this primarily for UC? Now, I've only used it in UC. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would use it in small bowel Crohn's. And the question would be, you know, would I use it in, in large bowel Crohn's? And the answer is, I don't know. I haven't come to that yet. We certainly know that some of the people that we think have UC have Crohn's. So I suspect, in fact, it has been used in people with Crohn's colitis. There's just not a literature on that. The other thing that I think is really hard is because we don't know if there is an adverse event, so a serious or life-threatening infection or a thromboembolic event, I do think you have some liability because there's not a lot of experience. It's one thing giving Antivio. It's a very different thing, I think, giving tofacitinib. There are some newer molecules coming down the road, ozanamod, which is a sphingosine 1-phosphase inhibitor. It basically prevents lymphocytes from migrating from lymph nodes into the gut, sort of a different way of keeping activated cells out of the gut. It actually, I think the name is Zaposia. It was actually just approved for multiple sclerosis. And I suspect some people are going to start using it off-label for UC. I think we need to be really careful. The tofacitinib clinical trial is going to be starting in the next several months. And I think once that starts, I would recommend if you have a patient for whom you're considering this, try to get that patient in the clinical trial. It's open label. Everybody's getting drug, but you also have some protection if something were to happen. So Dr. Himes, we would like to talk about some controversial topics in IBD and get your thoughts on them. One controversial topic we would like to start with is how many biologics are too many biologics for a patient with severe ulcerative colitis? When do you have the discussion with the family about needing a colectomy? How many are, are too many biologics? Again, it depends on how sick the child is. If you have someone who's hospitalized and they failed an anti-TNF, so their IV steroid refractory, they've now gotten two or three doses of 10 per kilo of Remicade, and they've done that over a period of a week or 10 days. And let's say that you can get an instantaneous level back and your level is 30, and that patient is still very ill, very ill. The chances of another biologic working are very small. I'm not going to tell you don't try it, but I would not be giving blood to that person and I would not be giving daily albumin to that person. I would have long ago introduced the concept of 
colectomy. And I will tell you, I introduced the concept of colectomy from day one as well. And we have pretty good evidence now from the PROTECT study that if you present with mild disease, your need for a colectomy in the first year is 1%. It's almost non-existent. But if you present with acute severe colitis, it's about one out of seven. People need to know that from day one. You're not going to spring that on them three weeks later. So they need to know that. On the other hand, if you have someone who's an outpatient, and let's say they're steroid dependent. So you just can't get them below 15 or 20. But when they're on 15 or 20, they're not bad. Okay, They can go to school and they failed an anti-TNF. That by all means, go to vetalizumab. No problem whatsoever. Go to vetalizumab. A big mistake that people do is, well, I'm going to try adalimumab or I'm going to try golimumab. If you're already a primary anti-TNF non-responder, you're not going to get better with your second or third. And I see that mistake a lot with second opinions. And then we have now the newer, like we just talked about it with tofacitinib and, and perhaps ozonamod in the future. I think those are reasonable, but I say to families again, what is the quality of life here? And most of the time people at that point are saying, we can't do this anymore. And then after they had their surgery, particularly, I hate to say this, when they've suffered for a while, they have their lives back and they can go to school and they can go out and they can function. They're not invalids anymore. The time you get into trouble is the person who presents with acute severe colitis doesn't get better on anything and who needs a colectomy 10 days after their diagnosis. They don't love you. They just think you failed. It's a very different situation. Thanks for that. Jumping to a slightly different uh, controversy. Um, there's certainly a lot of controversy around using thiopurines in children with IBD and the possibility of serious side effects such as cancer, you know, hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma in particular. What are your thoughts about that? This is an area that is true uh, to my heart, and I'm very passionate about this, but it's an area in which there is truly a geographic divide between North America and Europe. I remember vividly very passionate discussions between the North American contingent and the European contingent at the PIBD meetings that we've had over the last 10 or 15 years. So personally, I have not used a thiopurine in the last 15 years. The last time I used a thiopurine was in 2006 when the literature on hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma became known. We've had a patient in our practice die from HST TCL. And I worked very closely with Janssen and some of the other companies in trying to do due diligence and trying to look at the literature. There is absolutely no question that thiopurines play a role in the generation of HSTCL. Now, it is very, very rare. One out of 5,000, one out of 7,000, but it is a uniformly fatal disease. It's as simple as that. I think there is no justification anymore for using thiopurines in pediatric IBD. We have much safer alternatives. We are fortunate in North America that we can generally get those alternatives for our patients. There are other parts of the world where they are not readily accessible, and I think they're still very dependent on thiopurines. I do not see how in good conscience any of us would use a thiopurine given its attendant risks. Just remember, if you look at the list of substances or compounds that are known carcinogens, a 
azathioprine comes right after asbestos. So I always remember that along the way. So I, I simply don't use them at all. I do use methotrexate and I think methotrexate is not without its issues as well. But I think if I'm going to use an immunomodulator, either singly or in combination with the biologic, I will use methotrexate. Just a quick follow-up about that for a adolescent girl or a, a female patient, would you still use methotrexate? So the answer is it depends upon the person mm-hmm. and the relationship and what I know about them. So I tend to use methotrexate for the first six months when I start a biologic. However, if I think that there is a pregnancy risk or some other risk, I do not. I will tend to monitor levels a little bit more carefully and a little bit more proactively. Having said that, I've been burned when I haven't used methotrexate. And despite monitoring levels, someone has already developed antibodies. So I tend to use them, but I do recognize it's not for every case. And there are circumstances where the risks outweigh the benefit. One thing that will come up, especially for our patients who've maybe been in remission for several years, they're stable, potentially they're getting close to going off to college. I think a lot of times families will ask whether or not they will be able to try stopping their treatment. How do you usually talk to families about that? So it's always a great discussion. And I tell them that at the end, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but let me tell you what I would do if I were you or if your child were my child. The first thing I'd want to do is make sure that we have more than a clinical remission, which means I'm going to want to restage. So that's going to mean an ileocolonoscopy, and it may very well mean an MR. And then if we have evidence of complete healing, I have no evidence of disease whatsoever, then I think it is a reasonable discussion. And I will say to them, all right, let's play this out. We know that there is a significant likelihood of recurrent disease. We know that if there's any inflammation before I stop the medicine, that likely is much, much higher. But you might get away for a year or two or longer. I don't know that. But here's how we're going to play this game. We're going to monitor a fecal calprotectin every three to six months, and we're not going to have you just sort of get lost into the abyss of time where you come back to me and you're sick. So I am going to be monitoring you. And for sure, someone's calpro is going to change before they get sick. And in fact, in reality, that's exactly what happened. So I'll have a normal calpro for six months months to a year. And then that 50 becomes 200. And then I'll say, oh, that's very interesting. And they'll say, well, I feel fine. I say, okay, let's repeat it in four weeks. And now it's 400. And then I'll say, you know what? We can treat you now before you get sick, or we can treat you after you get sick. And it makes so much more sense to do it before you get sick. We used to be petrified that if we had a long honeymoon off of an anti-TNF, for example, that we would have a high likelihood of not being able to use it again. That probably was a little bit overblown. And the literature would suggest that about 80 plus percent of the time, we're going to be able to go back to where we were before. It's not like they had allergy before, not like they had antibodies before. They didn't. Very often, if I can, I will start them back on methotrexate. And I will use combination methylprednisolone. You know, I'll I'll do something to try to minimize that immunogenicity when I reintroduce it. But I have done this. Um, But I would say, again, depending on how long you follow people, at least 50%, if not more, are back on their medicine within two years. And I never say I told you so. It's an important lesson. 
I'd like to ask a question around the use of steroids or any adjustments to steroid therapy in the context of COVID-19. Have you felt the need or have you established a practice around adjusting your approach to steroid use? We have for sure. And you know, it's interesting because with the potential of us being able to uh, vaccinate our patients in the not too distant future, I was asked, how am I going to prioritize of our IBD patients who gets vaccinated first? Because there's not enough vaccine to do everyone. So I actually asked one of my coordinators the other day, to, and we have about 800 active kids that we follow at our center. Can you tell me, sort of segregate who's on what? Tell me everyone who's on steroids. Tell me everyone who's on a biologic, everyone who's on methotrexate. And I have to say, we're probably going to look at our kids on steroids now first. And I have tried to actively lower doses. This has been such an interesting 10 months. Remember, all of us were freaked out in March that all of our patients on Remicade were going to die when they got COVID. And it turns out probably just the opposite has happened because we've had a lot, as I'm sure many of the other centers, kids who've been on Remicade when they got COVID, they did absolutely fine. Again, we don't have an N of 5,000. And as you know, there's a burgeoning literature on the use of immunomodulators and even anti-TNFs for people who are very sick with COVID. So we may be blunting some of that hyperimmune response to the infection that gets people into trouble. But I have great respect for steroids, steroids for sure. I don't worry about thiopurines because we don't use them. So at my center, that's not on the thing. But I, all of our faculty, we're trying to lower steroids as quickly as we possibly can. Thanks for that. Maybe switching gears, we always try and uh, provide a little bit of insight for our listeners in, in terms of advice our guests have received in the past. Um, what's the best career advice that you've received and what advice would you give to trainees and junior faculty? So this is where I probably sound like a dinosaur. Things are so different than when I started my career. I have to tell you, right? They are different. Uh, the word balance was not invented <laughs> When I was a trainee, yeah, when I was a resident, we were on call every third night. For three years, essentially on call every third night. And the people who were more senior to me would say, oh, you guys have it so easy. You're on call every third night, right? And then the big joke for people who were on call every other night was, you miss half the good cases. I'm sure you've heard all those things. And if you haven't read House of God, you have to read House of God. But if you want an academic career and you really want to be knowledgeable and you really want to be at the forefront, there is going to be sacrifice involved. It may not be to the extent of what I did or what Bill Balistrieri did or other people did, because that was insane, but you're going to have to sacrifice and you're going to have to take some personal time, somehow figure that out and use that for your scholarly refinement. And that means reading. You get so many ideas just by reading what other people did. And very often what I tell people, go into the literature and then read the last couple of paragraphs where very good writers write down the limitations of their studies. What's the future? What haven't we done yet? And you get great ideas from that. And the second thing is realizing that medicine is a team sport. There's no I in medicine. It's not just you. It's your colleagues. It's the nurses. It's the dietitians. It's your administrative staff. And really, you want to cultivate that because we all went into this for the same reason. We want to make sick kids healthy. We really did. I mean, at the end of the day, it's as simple 
as that. And we enjoy children. So enjoy what you're doing. But one of the things that I've done, and I I know I told this to Tamara and I tell it to our fellows, let your patients also give you the ideas for your studies. And always ask, why am I doing it this way? Are there not better ways for me to do this? And all of a sudden, your brain will be flooded with ideas. For me, very early in my career, I took a half a day per week and I went to the library. Well, there are no libraries anymore. I would have a yellow pad and and I would go to the library and I would just think for four hours. When was the last time anybody just thought for four hours? We don't do it anymore. We're on our iPhones or we're doing something else. Give yourself time to think and surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are. If you want to be a better tennis player, don't play bad tennis players. Play really good tennis players who are going to whip your butt every time because you'll get better. And the same thing with academics and medicine. Surround yourself with smart people. That's why I hung out with Tamara so much. <laughs> That's why we're now hanging out with her. You're now you're hanging out with her. I can just feel it coming across. Thank you, Dr. Himes, for joining us. I feel like I learned a lot from you and you gave us really great advice. Any final words for our listeners that you'd like to say? Enjoy what you do. Even on the tough days, enjoy what you do. And at all heart, I I remember vividly, again, being a resident, being on call, there were no such thing as work hours. So we literally would work 30, 35, 36 hours. The sun always comes up the next day. No question, no matter how bad things are, bad days are balanced by good days. But enjoy the kids. When you're sitting with a family, enjoy them. It is such an honor and a privilege. Just think about it. These people are trusting you with the life of their child, right? There's no more precious possession. Enjoy it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Hines. Thank you. My pleasure. That was a great, great episode. His advice, so inspirational. Yeah, that was was really cool. That was a great conversation. Yeah, I I really like the reminder to uh, remember to enjoy what we're doing, even on those tough days. Yeah. Uh, Once again, we'd like to remind you that if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Bowsounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell a person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspian Foundation. You can also get there through our website, uh, our Naspian's website, which is www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Awesome. Thank you all for listening. Until next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.